Thank you, worship team. Why do you think we have to sing that over and over again? I am with you. I mean, why not just sing it one time? Why, why sing it four times in a row? Because you forget, don't you? Your labor seems to be in vain. Your parenting, your work, your effort. And uh, one day, everything that's broken will be healed. Last week, I used an illustration I want to carry on for the next series, uh, several uh, weeks in this series on Luke. It's an illustration, if you were here, you'll remember about the Andrea Gale. Remember that? Andrea Gale was a, a fishing boat that left the shores of Massachusetts in 1991 looking for swordfish and got caught in a storm, and it was called the Perfect Storm, a storm that uh, was made famous by a book and then a movie. And the Perfect Storm had these three weather systems that came together and basically created a superstorm which the Andrea Gale got caught up in and was crushed and all six lives were lost. And I'm suggesting that Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem for the last time, that's Luke 19, is similarly entering into a perfect storm. There's three high-pressure systems that are colliding that are going to end up causing the death of Christ himself. He's going to lose his life as he enters the storm much like the Andrea Gale did in 1991. And the, the three systems that Jesus is entering into, there's a, a spiritual realm that's taking place. There's a worldly power, that's the Roman Empire. And then there's the religious realm. Both the, the disciples make this up, but maybe more intensely the religious elite at that time, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the elders of Jerusalem. And in our text this morning, what we're going to see in Luke chapter 20 is Jesus standing against the winds of this religious storm. That's the whole chapter. So he's just going to interface with one storm, and you'll see it because these religious winds, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, and then the Sadducees, they approach Jesus like in three different bands. We all know this because we live on the coast. So the hurricane is coming ashore, and they report there's another band coming in. Uh, it has an intensity of wind and rain. And Jesus is standing in the Temple Mount, center place of Jerusalem, and these bands sort of come at him one after another in succession of three questions. And you can see it with me in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. One day as Jesus was teaching, this is the day after he entered Jerusalem on the donkey. This is the day after he has cleansed the temple. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? That's band number one or wave number one. Well, number two, if you look down in verse 20, that band didn't go well, which we'll talk about. So they watched him, the same group. They watch him, and then they sent in spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch Jesus in something he said so to deliver him up to the authorities and the jurisdiction of the governor. So that's the second band. And then the third and final band, verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees. This is the third band. 
They deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question. See, it's a series of three questions Jesus is facing. And what I want us to do this morning is imagine us as ourselves, each of you, you're somebody from the Weather Channel, and your assignment is Riceville Beach as the storm is approaching. You've seen these guys, haven't you not? And they stand on the beach while they, all this, you know, waves and wind is coming around, and they report back, you know. And the person back in the nice studio sipping the coffee says, stay safe, you know. Uh, so, but this poor soul, he's out there, he's, he's enduring all this weather, but he's making sort of field observations. This is what it feels like to be standing at Riceville Beach during this oncoming hurricane. So we're all standing like this reporter, and we're just going to make observations. So we're gonna, I'm going to read the text as we go along. It'll be a little easier to follow. And I want you just to imagine how you might feel, what you might sense as you're making observations about Jesus, about the crowd, about other people, as they intersect Jesus in these series of religious bands. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we're here, and there's all kinds of competitors to our thoughts right now. And some of us don't feel like you're with us. So we're reminded that you are really here. And I pray that you would sit next to us, each one here, and help us see something about ourselves. More importantly, help us to see something true about you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Band number one. Jesus had entered the temple, as I said the day before. He claimed it as his house. Very unusual. Hey, this is my house. It's a house of prayer. He cleans out all the religious people who are taking advantage of the pilgrims. The pilgrims can't bring their sacrifices from a long way away, so they sell the sacrifices in the Temple Mount, but they upcharge. And you've got to pay. I mean, you've made the pilgrimage, so you know it's way more than it costs, but you've got to buy the sacrifice, and Jesus just hates this. So he comes in after this entry on the, on the back of a, uh, of a foal of a donkey. He cleans house. And now the next day in chapter 20, he's in the t- on the Temple Mount, and he's teaching some of these same pilgrims that have come up. So what you need to try to imagine for yourself is this Temple Mount, it takes up one-sixth of the entire city. So this isn't like a church like Christ Community on the corner. This is one-sixth of the whole city. And when you are coming to it, you cannot not see it. It's at the highest part of Jerusalem. Its mount covers 35 acres. So the temple is inside the 35 acres, sitting there. You can see it. But there's this big, huge square, these massive walls, which we'll talk about next week. And in in the temple, when Jesus is in the temple mount, he's not teaching in the actual physical temple. He's along the cor- the corridors around where people would gather and they would listen to different people. And these pilgrims have praised Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. Jesus is teaching. So he's gathered quite a crowd here on this temple mount. And the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they come up in verse 2. This is quite a parade of powerful people. So no doubt, they've got their long robes. They look different than everybody. And when this little entourage makes its way across 
one of these acres towards Jesus, everybody notices. Hey, where are they going? I want to I follow after them. Wherever they're going, something's going to happen. And they're coming with some deliberate speed. They bully their way to the front of the crowd, and they interrogate Jesus, saying, Hey, where do you get your authority? I mean, Jesus, who, who made you the chief suddenly? I mean, I'm a chief priest. I never heard of you. Who, who, who makes you who you are? Why are you claiming that this is your house and you have authority? And I don't want us to notice Jesus' response. He first asks a question. Instead of giving a direct answer, he just asks a question. Jesus does this all the time. And God does this all the time through the Bible. It's a way of uncovering what's truly the question behind the question. You've ever been in these kinds of conversations? Somebody asks you a question, but really, you go, I think the question behind your question is this, and Jesus is trying to peel back this layer. It's, it's a way of trying to expose what's really going on here. Remember the very first question God asked in the Bible? Where can it be found? Genesis 3. That's the answer for most of my questions, by the way. It's either Jesus or Genesis 3. Remember, God comes in the garden, and what does he say? Adam, you know, where are you? It's not as if God couldn't find Adam. Wow, he's great at hide-and-go-seek. He's saying, Adam, you don't know where you are, so before we start the dialogue, I need you to understand you're lost. You are really in trouble. We need to establish that before we move the conversation forward. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to establish something with these guys before we answer the real question. So he asks a question. And you see this unfold here, verses 3 through 6. So he answered them, I will also ask you a question. 20 verse 3. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe John? But if we say from man, all the people are going to stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. Now, John here, John is the reference to John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one when Jesus came to be baptized, he announced, behold, remember, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you were to turn back to Luke chapter 3, you can look at it later today. When Jesus is baptized by John, a voice comes from heaven. The heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus and God spoke, You are my beloved Son whom I love. That's where Jesus gets his authority. He gets his authority from God himself. And John was sought after by the, the Jewish pilgrims, but he was despised by the re religious elite. And one time John referred to the religious, these religious elite as a family of snakes. I, I guess he missed the Dale Carnegie, you know, how to win friends and influence <laughs> message. Everybody's coming out to John. He's baptizing by the Jordan River. The religious elite have to be in on it to see what's happening. And they come up, sort of crest the hill and say, hey, that's a family of snakes. So he's not popular with the religious elite, but he's super popular with the pilgrim. And so Jesus asked this question about John's authority, and you can see the sweat beginning to form on their foreheads. 
it, it put them in a no-win situation. And they, they huddle together and say, well, gosh, if we say John's really a prophet from heaven, then we ought to be listening to him. But we don't want to listen to John. But if we say he's from just man, we don't pay attention to John. All these stupid pilgrims who like John, they're going to stone us right here in the temple courtyard. So we can't do that. And they can't answer Jesus' question directly because either answer gets them in trouble. It's kind of like a politician trying to answer a question about a balloon going across the United States. <laughs> Just can't quite answer that question, right? So they say, verse 7, well, we don't know. I mean, just come on, guys. You're the smartest guys here. We're asking you the simplest question about a religious guy everybody here knows about. Everybody has an opinion about John the Baptist. There's not one person who doesn't have an opinion, and somehow the smartest group can't say anything. Oh, we don't know. So Jesus refuses to answer their question. Why? They're not looking for the truth. This isn't a conversation about who really has authority, and we're going to sort of bend accordingly. This is the religious elite coming to huff and puff and blow Jesus down. Instead, they're, they're, in, they're flattened. This actually exposes, John, exposes the, the religious elite as frauds to the pilgrims. Because they know they're supposed to be the smart people, and they're not answering and they know, the religious elite, they know they look foolish. The chief problem for the religious elite is that they have to be chief. They don't, they don't hate Jesus so much as they hate that he's saying he has all authority. Does that make sense? I mean, Jesus is okay as long as at the end I'm chief. And we need to just stop and ask ourselves that same question before we just kind of pick up our stones and throw them at the religious elite. How about you? Is it okay for Jesus to have all authority over your life? Or, in the end, you need to be chief. So, there's parts of what I like about Jesus, parts of what I don't like about Jesus. I'm the chief, I get to decide. Well, the religious elite, they, they can't afford to look foolish, so they retreat and regroup. And in their regrouping, they come back, verse 20, and they have sort of a second tactic. They watch Jesus, this is chapter 20, verse 20, and then they sent spies. Okay, so we're not, gonna, we're not good at this Q&A thing, so we're going to send in some spies, and we need these guys to pretend to be sincere and hope that they catch Jesus in something. And notice it says, to deliver him up to the authorities and the jurisdiction of the governor. So the Roman authorities had the power to eliminate people. The Jewish people didn't. And they thought, okay, this is, this is the next game plan. We're not going to be able to catch Jesus, so we're going to send in some spies. We're going to get him to answer a question wrongly. Then the Romans are going to come in, and they're going to attack Jesus. That's the plan. Verse 21, so they ask him, these people who are spies, teacher, 
We know that you speak and teach rightly. Oh, don't you hate this already? And show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. I mean, this just, don't you hate this pretending? Like these people can butter up Jesus and Jesus is going to fall for it? Like, wow, they really like me. I mean, come on. I mean, he can see through all this pretending. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give a tribute to Caesar or not? This is their question. This is, this is the question they have sort of planned. They've gotten together and said, okay, Jesus got us in a no-win situation. So how can we get Jesus in a no-win situation? How can we turn the tables? You get this, don't you? And we think, well, we'll come up with this question. I'm sure they field tested it. They got, oh, this is a great question. He can't answer it. Can't, can't squirm out of it because if he says this, he says that. And they come in, and you just know they're just like, yep, we got Jesus now. And they let the spies come up front, but they're circling around the back to make sure. And they probably brought some of the Roman soldiers just to get Jesus on the record. And what's happened here is that in Jesus' day, there was something called a head tax. And the head tax was just a tax as a tribute to Caesar. It wasn't much money. What was behind the head tax was authority and power. So anybody could pay. It'd be like you giving me a penny. It wouldn't cost you very much. But the head tax was a way of saying, we acknowledge we're inferior and we honor Caesar. You, you can feel that grading, can't you? It wouldn't matter if it was a penny. It's, it's the matter I've got to put this tax in, and while I'm doing it, I'm saying, I'm under Caesar. I honor him. He's the greatest. You just don't want to do that at all, whatever the lump sum is. And they think they have Jesus in this religious trap. He's in a no-win situ situation because if he proves of paying the tax, all the pilgrims are going to hate Jesus. They're going to just turn on Jesus. They've been the ones, remember when Jesus came in and waved the palm branches, here's the king. Oh, he's not going to be for the tax. But if he disapproves of paying the tax, then we got the Roman soldiers saying, we can't have anybody. See, he's, they've caught Jesus here. And he gives this very interesting reply, verse 23. But Jesus perceived their craftiness. Sometimes a term used for Satan. And he said to them, show me a denarius, a, just this coin, Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Say so they look at the coin, they know it. It has, Caesar's, has, a, has a portrait of Caesar on it. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus gives this very surprising response. First of all, you have to pay your tax. Sorry, you've got to pay your taxes. I mean, if you have dollar bills, whose faces are on them? Presidents, right, mostly. And if they want that, then you've got to give it back. You may not like it. You may vote against it. But in the end, you've got to pay your tax. This really stuns the crowd. And then Jesus says, he knows what's happening here. It, they're trying to gin up the support for the pilgrims to overthrow Jesus. Then Jesus goes on to say, 
Yes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. And what the Pharisees and the scribes didn't understand and probably the pilgrims didn't understand and probably the disciples didn't understand is that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, his target wasn't to overthrow the Roman Empire. That wasn't his goal. That's what they wanted the goal to be. But Jesus' target was to come in and to overthrow them. And when I say them, I mean everyone on the Temple Mount. Everyone on the Temple Mount wanted to be chief. To over, overcome the Roman government for Jesus wouldn't be that difficult. Remember, he could say, I could call a legion of angels right now. That wouldn't take any effort. But to overthrow somebody's heart, it'll cost him all that he has. So they, they really don't understand what Jesus is doing here, but he gives this sort of cryptic response, but give to God the things that are God. So he holds up this coin, and on the coin is Caesar's portrait. And inscription, just like our coins, there's some words written around the, the circle, and it says, Caesar, or king, son of God. Now just try to imagine for a moment. Jesus is in the temple, he holds up a coin, and he says, what does it say? And they say, King, Son of God, Caesar is the king. Jesus is holding this coin. Give to God the things that are God. What has God stamped his image on? See, Jesus is saying, anything that has the world's image on it, then give it back. But anything that has God's image on it, then give it back to God. What has God's image on it? What's the answer to that? You. You are made in God's likeness. You're like a coin in God's circulatory system. You realize that? He's stamping out coins. One of them is Paul Phillips. And he's sending it down, and he wants it to be in circulation. And he, he, he's in control of that. And this coin, known as Paul Phillips, he must give himself back to God. Anything that has God's image on it. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created, he stamped him, them, male and female. He created them. So you and I aren't some kind of cosmic accident. God has stamped on each of us his own image. And because of that, God makes a claim to our life. So, again, we want to ask a question here as we get to this end of the second band. If somebody's looking at your life, whose image would they see? But by holding up your life, who would they say is the king? This third band rolls in. I love at the uh, end of verse 26. Let's look at that first. And when they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him, this is the end of the first band, and what he said, they marveled at his answers and they became silent. You feel that? This, all this wind and noise is rolling in and Jesus answers. Whew. 
band after band, and now we have the third band, verse 27. Let's read this. Then there came some Sadducees. This is another religious elite section who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses, who wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and he has a wife, and that wife has no children, then the man must take the widow, uh, no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So the brother has to marry this widow. Now let's imagine that there were seven brothers. She married the first one, and he died without children. And so the second brother took the wife, and he died. And then the third brother took the wife, and he died. This is very unfortunate for this family. And this poor woman, she has to marry all seven brothers and has no children. It's a ridiculous question. And afterwards, then the woman dies. I'm sure she's dead long before seven husbands. And in the resurrection, which notice they don't believe in, so you know it's ridiculous, whose wife will the woman be? I mean, they just have this fanciful argument because she had seven husbands. Two important facts about this dialogue. First of all, the Sadducees, they, they only believe in the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah. Secondly, they don't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees approached Jesus, and, and I've already alluded, alluded to this. One commentator said, no woman could survive seven husbands. Three or four, maybe, but she'd never, she would have perished long before seven. So you know it's ridiculous, and you know it's ridiculous because they don't believe in the resurrection. But in Deuteronomy chapter 25, there is this law that in order to, we don't have time to go into it, to save the family name and the land, the widow would marry the next brother in line. And so the Sadducees, Sadducees create this exaggerated scenario. And then Jesus responds, verse 34. When the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, the sons of this age are marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, so we're in this age, and then there's an age to come, the eternal age, and to the resurrection of the dead, they neither marry or they're given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but the living, for all live to him. So Jesus' response, first of all, he says, there is a resurrection. There is a resurrection, and I'm going to prove it to you because when God comes in, in the five books that you believe in, notice he didn't go to Isaiah, he goes to Exodus and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could have said, I was the God, but they're dead, so I'm not really their God anymore. No, I am the God. I am actually the God of the living. So you're wrong about the resurrection. And secondly, you're wrong about marriage. We, we become eternal beings, and we're not married anymore in heaven. No one is married or given in marriage. Now, we don't become angels. This is maybe a tiny little piece that's helpful. Human beings don't become angels. 
uh, Clarence did, and it's a wonderful life, but nobody else does, okay? We become like the angels in that we're eternal, but we don't get wings or anything in a little halo. That's not how it works out. That's Hollywood. And so he's dismantling their argument. First of all, there is a resurrection. Secondly, no one is going to be married, period. And basically what Jesus is pointing out is, you guys haven't read your Bible very well. You notice that? He's not coming up with new information. He's coming up, we, hey, we can find this information in the Bible that you say you believe. And the problem with these people is they still want to be chief. Even though they stopped asking questions in verse 40, they just want to be chief. Whether it's the first band or the second band or the third band. Now, my question here as we turn towards the end of the chapter, verse 45, Jesus then turns to his disciples, beware of the scribes. You feel the the crowd sort of dissipating here. And he gets his 12 together. Hey, those guys, let's not be like them. Beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes. They love the greetings in the market. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They love the places of honor at feast. But they really just devour people. And they're just pretending in their prayers. Don't, don't be anything like them. Now, do you think this was necessary for Jesus to reiterate this to the disciples? They've just watched it unfold. They've been standing there. They've encountered these three bands, and Jesus has dismantled all of them. They all look foolish. So do you think Jesus needs to come back around and say, one more time, kind of like before we break the huddle, let's make sure we're not like these fools that need to be honored, that need to be the best, have the best seats. Don't you think it's a little redundant? What's the answer to that? No, I hate to say it's no, it's not redundant. Why? Two chapters later, what are the disciples arguing about? Who can be the greatest? Oh, again, you're like Jesus going, do you remember the huddle? I mean... You saw wave after wave of these people looking like fools. I told you don't be like them. And here you are saying, I want to be like them. Do you see how ingrained this is in my heart and in your heart? I, I don't want us to say, oh, man, I'm so glad I'm not one of those religious elites that he was praying or talking about today from the pulpit. No, you are. I, I am. I love being chief. I love it. It brings me pleasure. It's not painful wanting to be chief. It's pleasurable wanting to be chief. And I bet you have the same feeling too. And Jesus is circling through like a counter storm say, hey, it doesn't work out when you try to be chief. I want to conclude here. After all the noise and the parade of powerful people, after this collision of Jesus and this hurricane, after all these weakened storms have dissipated and blown away, Jesus draws all eyes on the most unlikely person in the 35 acres on the Temple Mount. 
someone without a title, no scholarly background. No one would have noticed this woman if Jesus hadn't pointed her out. She has no name. She makes no noise. She has no seat of honor. And yet for Jesus, she's the towering figure on the Temple Mount this day. Jesus looked up and saw rich putting their gifts into the offering box, which is at the temple. And then he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Disciples, I tell you, this poor woman, she's put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, she put in all she had to live on. You're the reporter. You've, you've watched this wave after wave unfold. Jesus captures every disciple's attention. Guys, look right over here. I mean, you're not going to see it. But this is the tower. This is the giant. This is, I mean, don't be like them. Be like this. The woman is a widow. She has no way to make income on her own because those widows would have had to live just on handouts. So she can't say, well, I gave all I had, but I've got a degree and I've got a good job and I can replenish. No, she can't replenish. She's giving everything she had in a way that no one would see. And this lady caught my attention this week and made me ask myself, and I'm asking you so you can bear the burden with me. What, what sacrifices am I prepared to make for my faith? She caused me to pause and reconsider and ask myself, Paul, are you, are you more like the scribes who care about what other people think or more like the wealthy who hold on enough to be self-sufficient or more like the disciples who are jockeying for greatness or are you like this no noise, no name, no honor woman? Which one are you more like, Paul? Mm, I can't say I like my answer. But here we're on the season of Lent. We have a little wooden box back there. And what about you? You need to be chief. In order to try to tear your heart apart from you being chief, what in the next 40 days would you say, I just need to let go of that as like a sign or a signal of I don't need to be in control anymore? I'm going to just give you about a minute. And we're going to listen to a song that's an instrumental song. It's the song I play every time when I do this. It's called I See the Lord. And I just imagine there's, there's going to be a day for each one of us when we go through a doorway and there's a path we're going to walk and the Lord's going to be at the end of it. And I really want to be able to be the person that said, I did everything I could. So I'll give you some time to think and then I'll pray.